Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. What I say to them is if you think about the metric of money, this all important measure of success, if I were to say to you, here's a job that's going to pay you a lot more money, but you'll have less vacation. So the only vacations you're going to take are those nice little weekends to cosmopolitan cities. You'd be like, great, awesome. If I were to ask you that, if you were the guy who wants to wake up at the stream, you'd be like, no, that's not going to work for me. In fact, I'd rather have less money, but more vacation because those far, you know, out camping places are actually harder to get to. And so, you know, we'd look at these metrics and we say, okay, well, I know on paper, those are the metrics that matter, but they don't actually matter to me. And so I can fill in those checkboxes and I can make the money, but I'm not really happy. And so the whole book is written with this idea of giving people a framework to actually be able to think about changing up the scorecard and making it a scorecard that works for them, particularly wonderfully quirkily them, as opposed to everybody else's scorecard. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. AWeber. 
Simpler Email Marketing. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Laura, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah. So I actually uh, was introduced to you by way of your publicist who sent me your book, Limitless. And uh, I remember just as I sat down with this book, I couldn't help but underline so much. And I, I was like, wow, I, I feel like I'm hearing the sound of my own voice echoed in so much of what you're saying uh, because I've said so many similar things. So it really uh, struck a chord with me. But before we get into the book and, and your work and all of that, uh, I want to start by asking you, what is one of the most important important things that you learned from one or both of your parents that have influenced and shaped who you've become and what you've done with your life? Oh, gosh, that's such a great question. And I love it because like you were hearing yourself in my book, I hear myself in that. I spent 20 years doing executive search for nonprofit organizations. And the thing about doing executive search for nonprofits is that you don't necessarily have to know what or how somebody accomplished something, but you really need to know why. Because nobody's in that work for the glory or the fame or the big paycheck. They're in it because there was a mother, a father, a teacher, a 
person of faith, a, a diagnosis, a world catastrophe, something that set their life in a completely different direction suddenly one day. And so I always started by asking people about something that they learned from somebody along the way. And it might've been a parent or it might've been you know some other mentor person in their life. But I always ask that question because it's a great way to start people talking about the thing they know best, right? Themselves. But also you really get an insight into who they are and what they choose. So um, I've never had that question asked of me. And now I feel a little nervous and self-conscious, but I will tell you, um, I think what I probably learned from both of my parents who themselves were parents of immigrants, uh, or sorry, themselves were children of immigrants, is that there are soft rules and there are hard rules. You know, I mean, there's like the hard rules, like you can't murder people, um, but mm -hmm. there are soft rules, like nobody is necessarily telling you what you can or can't do. And you have to stop waiting for permission in life for things. Mm -hmm. So sometimes, you know, you can be a little pushy and, you know, somebody's going to ask, somebody's going to get something. Someone's got to be, you know, under the oak tree with Oprah on Super Soul Sunday, right? Like, why not you? It's got to be someone. And so I think I probably learned early on that if there's something that you really want in life, you're going to be the one who's going to have to go out and get it. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that they were both uh, children of immigrants. So I, I can't help but wonder this because I'm a child of immigrant parents. And I, I wonder, you know, in that environment, what are the things that you were taught uh, about careers? And, and the reason I ask this is because you say the only definition of success that counts is yours and yours alone. And the only way to be truly limitless is to journey along your very own life's path. But having grown up in an immigrant family, I know how counter that goes, what you just said, to what it's like to grow up as an immigrant because immigrant parents come here. Uh, with this idea that, okay, we came with nothing. Our job is to basically provide you security and ensure that you don't end up a giant screw up in life. So how do you have those two things coexist? And what did your parents tell you uh, about careers? Yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, I think that's really true. And, you know, when I was growing up, I was told, you know, you become a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, an accountant, there are professions, right? There are careers and there are professions <laughs> and they track very neatly to majors in college and graduate school. And at the same uh -huh. time as a woman, I was also getting messages like, and marry a nice Jewish doctor, right? So it, it was a little bit of uh, go to graduate school, be your own person, have a career, but also you're not completely successful till you've sort of checked this box. And I, I talk a lot, you know, I, as you know, I, I do a lot of public speaking and I'm, you know, make my living as a, as a, keynote uh, speaker. And I um, get on stage and I talk about how my definition of success that I've been carrying around in my back pocket since I was little came from lots of places. And one of them is this idea that, you know, you should be a lawyer, right? You should, you should have a career. And I go to law school and I hate law school. The first week I turn around and I'm like, I'm in the worst place. This doesn't make any sense for me. I don't want to be here. And so I drop out and then I join a presidential campaign. And uh, the only thing that saved me from my, my parents' wrath is that I was, I think at the time, dating the man of my mother's dreams, which was he came in the form of a six foot two medical student named Alan, uh, who came from a good family and belonged to a nice temple. <laughs> and, and, and the problem with Alan was that every time I kissed him, all I could think of was milk, butter, cheese eggs. Like I got to pick up the dry cleaning. I got to get my groceries. I got to, it was just, there was no spark. And I would tell my grandmother the story of me and no spark Allen about how like I just, there was nothing there. And she would just look at me and she'd be like, you just need to concentrate. 
<laughs> right? Because that was success. Like, how could I possibly let the perfect man, the perfect definition of success slip through my fingers? That was the whole reason that I, my parents put me in these places so I could meet the man of their dreams. And so I think there is this moment where you turn around and you're like, okay, so I've done it. I checked all the right boxes along everybody else's path to everybody else's version of success. And I'm living a life that on paper looks right. But it doesn't feel right. And it doesn't feel right because it's not right for me. Like I was living my parents' life and my grandparents' life. And there comes a moment when you go, okay, so I'm successful, but I'm not happy. And why can't we have both? And that's the moment when you just have to say, well, am I willing to eat ramen soup for six months while I figure it out, while I take a completely different path? Like, what are the things that I can do that can look maybe to the outside world? Like somehow they're, you know, credible as I'm making the leap from the traditional acceptable by immigrant parents and grandparents experience, both for them and their fear and what they came from, but also, you know, their social circles as well. And then in living into the life that I really want for myself. Wow. Uh, do you have siblings? I have a sister. And uh, are you the older or the younger? I'm the younger. She's 16 months older than I am. Okay. What do you think was the difference in the messages that you both got? Do you think things changed with you? Because my ongoing joke is that if you're the child of immigrants, I, I think this is applicable to any parents, immigrants or not. The first kid is the experiment. Everything you screw up on the first kid, you fix on the second. And I, uh, you know, I'll give you context. I remember very distinctly when I got to seventh grade, my parents thought I had turned into this horrible human being because I wanted nice shoes. I wanted expensive shirts uh, and we couldn't afford any of it. When my sister got to seventh grade, my parents had been through all of this whole popular kid nonsense before. So it was completely normal to them. And so I wonder in your own experience what that was like. But was that also a boy-girl thing too? Do they have different expectations of her because she was a girl? I don't know. Here's the thing. I, I know that like – that's actually a good question because uh, I remember when the dentist told my, my dad that I needed braces, he was like, yeah, that's bullshit. His teeth are fine. When he told my, my dad my sister needed braces, he was like, yeah, fine. Get her braces. Uh, so maybe, yeah, to some degree. Yeah. I mean girls are supposed to curtsy and be pretty. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you got to work your I, I, power I, muscle, right? You got the money maker. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I, I always wonder, like you know, when you have a, you know two siblings, uh, whether the younger one gets a different narrative in an immigrant family, and maybe it's not just a boy girl thing because I've seen it, you know, even with people who are, are you know two brothers or two sisters. So I don't know about that. It's really interesting. I think that I would say that my parents were exceptionally difficult on me um, and expected a ton. Now, if I, I, my sister was 16 months older and my cousin also grew up in our house and she was a couple of years older than her. My cousin would tell you that my parents were really hard on her. And by the time they got to me, she'd already broken their spirit. So I think, <laughs> I, I think it really all depends, you know, where you stand always is dictated by where you sit. And I think that based on birth order, I sure felt like they'd perfected their parenting and being tough <laughs> by the time they got to me. And they would probably say exactly the opposite was their experience. I think we always think people are harder on us than everyone else around us. I mean, that's just probably a narrative. We think everybody's staring at us and, and, yeah. and, and talking yeah. about us. But I really, I don't know. I, I, you know, I also grew up, I'm Gen X. So I grew up, um, 
with parents that, that were like the benign neglect type of parents, you know, they weren't, Mm -hmm. they, they, they were there and they provided for us and they loved us and life was great, but they weren't helicopter parents. They weren't jumping in and solving our problems. And so I think maybe by the time I came along, my parents had already seen enough other problems from my cousin and my sister. But about the time I got there, they maybe knew how to jump in a little earlier or maybe knew how to help, or maybe could head things off a little bit more because they just had Uh more time in. I don't really know. Yeah. My sister was also very much the popular girl. She, like you, you know, she was popular. She, I was only a year behind her in school and all of my male friends had crushes on her. You know, I went back for my 10-year high school reunion and some of my best guy friends were like, you're pretty. Were you always pretty in high school? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> I pretty much look exactly the same. And Thanks. Like I just, they didn't, you know, I was a nerd. I went to, I went to computer sleepaway camp. Like I was, my mother once told me I was the smart one. <laughs> By the way, mothers of daughters, if you're listening, don't ever say that to your daughter. It was meant obviously as a huge compliment that I was intelligent, but you know, when you're 15 years old and all you want is that boy to pay attention to you and then you're told you're smart. Yeah, it wasn't great. So, I, you know, I think we were just different human beings and I think we had different expectations out of life. And, um, and, and I think that everything, all the choices that we've made since have reflected that. It's just who we are as people. And, and I, I've always been, you know, my sister was the kind of person we joke around. Her name is Karen and we joke around, here comes Karen. Like Karen walks in and suddenly all of first class empties out and everybody can get an upgrade. <laughs> or, um, you know, she walks in and it's like, it's like everything in the store goes on sale. She just, she, she, she just, things just happen. She just has this, she has this, this, this luck in life. And, has always had that and has worked really hard also. So, you know, I think luck happens when you work really hard and it happens to be there. Um, but I have was always the kid who chose the harder way, you know, like I chose the nerdy club as opposed to the popular club. I chose debate as opposed to, you know, um, student council. Like I just, I always chose the harder way. And I was the kid who always put super heavy rocks in my backpack and, and then, you know, tied one leg behind my back and hopped up the mountain where she just like found someone to carry her. You know, she just, it was, it was really interesting. And I remember her turning to me once when I was, uh, in, in high school and saying, you know, you don't have to make it always so hard. And I, 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 so I don't know how much it was the parents and how they raised us and birth order and all of that, or just how much of it was her personality. And she was just always somebody who could see the easier path and take it. Whereas I, I would see the easier path and I would think for some reason that was selling out or it was terrible or it was wrong. And, and I would, I would uh, resent her and other people for taking it. When what I realize now is sometimes the easier, easier path is just the easier path and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think I've ever heard anybody describe uh, parenting as benign neglect. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, yeah. my parents are going to listen to this and I'm going to get a phone call now. But <laughs> well, it's funny because when when you, you heard that, when you said that, I suddenly thought, you know, I was like, okay, you know what? My parents weren't, you know, like as bad as I thought I made them out to be. I'm like, yeah, I would call that benign neglect. They were busy. You know? Yeah. I would consider like, my own parenting benign neglect too. I, you know, <laughs> I, I, I actually love the parenting style of benign neglect. I feel like your kids should learn how to solve their own problems. When my kids come to me, they tell me they're bored. I'm like, great. Uh-huh. I'm sure you can solve that problem. Go come back when dinner is on the table. And by the way, come back a little before, cause you're going to help cook it. Right. Like I just, <laughs> I, I really believe that, um, that really believe that, um, not being the solution to all of your children's problems is going to serve uh-huh. them well in life. Now 
our kids have to have something to complain about to their psychotherapist. So maybe that will be the thing they complain about, <laughs> about me. But I do believe that my children are better human beings because I am less present in their life all the time, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I, you know, it's funny you, you say that, you know, the idea of, you know, I'm bored. And I remember I, my, my guess is just from talking to you, we're probably close in age. When I was, when I would tell my dad that it was like, yeah, great. Go f- do something. <laughs> like well, This is I not my, my problem. That. To I told my dad that yeah. once I made the huge mistake of telling my father that I was bored right after he'd come home from a long day of work. I was like, dad, I'm bored. And he was good. He goes, Hey, go get me a piece of paper and a pencil. And I was like, Oh, okay. He's going to give me stuff to do. Yay. And I go back and I give him a piece of paper and a pencil. And he spends like five minutes writing on this paper, like writing and writing and writing and writing. I'm like getting all excited. And then he hands me the piece of paper and the piece of paper is a giant list of like 30 numbers. And he goes, here, go add these up. That was it. <laughs> he gave me math. I told him I was bored and he gave me arithmetic. Guess how that many times like I told him Indian I was parent. bored. Yeah. I never told him I was bored again. <laughs> never. That was it. He taught me well. <laughs> wow. Well, you know, one of the things I want to ask you about um, is education, just because it, particularly as a parent, you know, there's something you say at the, the very beginning of the book, you say, we're all limited women and men both to measuring our progress by how fast and how high we climb. We're limited by the imaginations and burdens of others. We're limited by their opinions about who we are and where we belong. We're so limited by checking off the boxes of other people's versions of success that we forget to determine our own. And that really just kind of hit me hard. It was one of those things that literally, I think that was the line that made me think, okay, yeah, absolutely. I want to have this person as a guest because I wanted to ask you just about that one very thing. And I wonder both uh, having you know been raised by parents who are immigrants, um, having children of your own and having said something like that, what are your thoughts on how you're going to educate your kids? And how do you have this worldview coexist with a modern education system, which in in my mind, in a lot of ways, is very contrary to what you've said? So I've kind of screwed myself because I wrote a book that has a subtitle, How to Ignore Everybody. (laughs) (laughs) The other day I was, you know, lecturing my kids about something and my sassy 14-year-old was like, so is this a thing we're supposed to ignore? (laughs) So, you know, maybe that's going to be a problem. Maybe that's going to come back to haunt me. I don't know. We'll see. You know, yeah. I I was asked the other day on a podcast about the advice that I would give my 22-year-old self. And I stopped for a second. And I was like, the advice I would give my 22-year-old self over a podcast that's being recorded on the internet, that's being listened to on a cell phone, Hmm. Like none of those things existed when I was 22. And so I think, yeah, the advice I'm giving is contrary to the modern education system. But I think, I think the world changes around us so fast that even if we know ourselves, like even if my kids were 14 and 16 right now, know who they are and know what they want out of life, the Mm -hmm. world around them is going to change so much. You know, my older son, is fascinated by NASA. He he's the kid who sits in his tenth grade class and in the corner of his laptop watches the entirety of a twelve hour spacewalk. And wow. he comes home, and I'm like, "Were your other friends interested? Were you talk? Did you talk to them all about lunch?" He's like, "No, it was just me. No one cared." He's just he's so interested in this that he just he wants to he wants to take all STEM classes, and I mean, he wants to build international space stations now. 20 years from now, will there be international space stations, or we're, are we going to be building outposts on Mars? Who knows, right? The world is going to be different. And so even if he knows what he wants to do today, 
it's going to change around him. And so I think, I think that the, the advice that I'm giving to people is not to spend all of their time pursuing a, a, a very specific and very defined idea that's going to change and to really think about what are the things that they like to do and where do they get a lot of energy and where do they, where are they at their best and spending time there? Because I think, you know, titles and jobs are not portable, but skill sets and interests are. Mm, Wow. So let's just, let's shift gears a little bit and actually start talking about your work. But uh, what I want to do is kind of talk about how you actually ended up uh, getting to this point and <laughs> how this worldview was shaped by the work that you did uh, in the nonprofit world. Yeah, I would love to tell that story as if it was super strategic and that I had a plan <laughs> and I executed on my goals and everything worked out perfectly, but it's not the case. I mean, every every major career junction that I had was an accident and, you know, luck, right? Where the hard work and <laughs> an opportunity appeared and I was able to take it because of the work that I'd put in. So every, every, every transition I had in my career was the like 25 years that lead up to being an overnight success type of thing. Um, I, and I, and I say that because I think that there are so many people who are busy doing things like promoting books that try to think, you know, show that they have it all and they know it all and that everything's perfect. And I just think it does a disservice to the rest of humanity for any of us to pretend like we know what the hell we're doing. Cause I don't think any of us, <laughs> I mean, I don't know that any of us really do. I think there are things that we do in life where we're like unimpeachably, this is something I do well. And then yeah. there's like the rest of the 98% of our day where we're like, oh, I'm kind of making it up as we go along, like parenting, uh-huh. right? <laughs> who, knows? Yeah. who knows? Wow. Um, well, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that, you know, you actually mentioned this idea of nonlinear when you mentioned, you know, the people that you've interviewed that had the most interesting career paths. And I, that's like, it, people are always like, you know, what are the common patterns between people you've interviewed? I'm like, there's one that's always common and it's how they got here was anything but linear. It's like just zigging and zagging and detours and dead ends and, you know, all sorts of crazy shit that you would have never imagined is like, you know, what look a career path looks like. Um, and yet I think that we're very much raised uh, and educated to believe that life is linear because of the fact that the way we're educated is linear. Um, so how do you, how do you, you know, how do you resolve that paradox when you get into adult life or what would you tell people who are looking to resolve that? paradox? Well, I would say first and foremost, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, in 20 years of interviewing people and remember I, I was interviewing people for CEO positions of major international nonprofit organizations, foundations, universities. I was interviewing people who were successful, right? Capital S successful at the top of their game. And here's what I learned about every single one of them. They all failed at some point. They all had U-turns and right turns and left turns. And it was in those U-turns and left turns and right turns where they became interesting human beings, right? You don't develop character with success. You develop mm-hmm. character through failure. And, and, and I never really looked for subject matter expertise. I, I'm a firm believer that anybody can learn anything from a book, right? Mm-hmm. But in order to do that and in order to be successful at it, you need five things. And that's hunger, weight, tenacity, speed, and grit. So hunger, right? The desire, just the outright desire to do more, know more, be more. Weight. How serious of a human being are you, right? Can I put you in front of my biggest client? Can I, can I put you in front of my biggest donor? Can I put you in front of my biggest account and know that you're going to represent me well and take it seriously? 
tenacity. Um, just how many times are you willing to get up over and over and over again after you fail and learn more? Speed. How fast from fail, failure to fix, right? Just how quick does your brain work? And then grit. Just how tough are you? You know, how much are you willing to take it on the chin in order to do the thing that you care about deeply? And when I would see people who had those five things as demonstrated through personal experience or professional experience, I was like, yeah, this is the person at two in the morning when the shit hits the fan that's going to show up and be the, be the, the, the guy, the girl that I want, right? This is the person who's the right person for this job. Cause it's not just that they've got on paper, the right work. They have consonants. They like the, what they do matches who they are and they bring everything they, they want to this thing because it's just, it's all aligned. And so that's really what I looked for in people. And I think for me, that's reflected in my own career because it meant that, you know, going back to this, 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 what I learned from my parents, it means that at every career shift I've had, you know, the next job was always something that I had absolutely no qualifi- qualifications for because that's why it interests me, right? If I'm super qualified for it, it's because I already done it before. So I was not really ever qualified, but it was like, yeah, that seems interesting. I'm going to do that. And I knew that I could bring hunger, weight, tenacity, speed, and grit to doing it. So whether it was dropping out of law school and joining a presidential campaign, whether it was walking into the White House at, you know, 20, Two years old, you know, presidential appointee, um, helping build AmeriCorps, you know, uh, going to this big search firm, having my moment of rage, starting my own firm, getting on a stage and starting to public speak, writing this book, whatever it was, every career shift was like, huh, that seems interesting. Let's try that now. And it wasn't that I had confidence that I would be successful at the thing. I had confidence in my own discipline that I would bring everything that it took to get better at the thing that was needed. So I want to go into the idea of consonants. Before we do that, I didn't want to let it go that you mentioned uh, working on a presidential campaign. And I wonder from something like that, what you learned about uh, human behavior, relationships, and accomplishing something as big as you know succeeding at, at getting elected to uh, the highest office in the country. Well... I learned Which I'm that, sure we could have an hour conversation yeah. about that. <laughs> Where do you want to start on that? Um, I mean, so I'll tell you two things I learned. Uh, first is that I believe that chariz- charisma is absolutely an innate quality. I think that there are people who just have it in a way that is uh, gravitationally shifting to the world. You know, Bill Clinton would walk into a room, he'd be in the back of a room of 4,000 people and not say a word. And all of a sudden, every, every person in the room would turn around. I mean, he just had this, this, this energy, this magnetism that people talk about. And I, and I believe it's still there. And even now he's older, you know, he seems like he's ailing you and and he's a vegan now. So he's like all skinny. (laughs) Like you talk to him and he looks like an old man, but when you look him in the eyes, there's the fire and the energy is still there in his eyes in a way that when he moves on to the next person to talk to them, you still feel them burning into your, into your soul. It's just, it's, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating thing. And even people who don't agree with this politics say the same thing about him. I mean, it's just, so I believe that there's this, this charisma. So that's the first. The second is that I also learned that even if you don't have that kind of charisma, there are people who create relationships that are so deep and so bonding that you might not necessarily be the leader who's out front in the spotlight, whose name is bold-faced, but there are people in this world who are behind the scenes who are just as much leaders. So yes, I worked for Bill Clinton, but I also had the, the, the great opportunity to work for a man named Eli Siegel. And Eli ran the 92 campaign and then could have had any job he wanted to in the entire world. He could have been ambassador to France, you know, like great, easy, cushy jobs. 
but he wanted to run, he wanted to create AmeriCorps. And this idea of community service in exchange for college tuition was actually the reason I dropped out of law school and joined the Clinton campaign. And I went to go work for Eli on day two. Now, on day one, I was brought into the White House. A friend of mine I'd met on the campaign trail was running the volunteer operations. And he's like, hey, we need somebody in this office to answer these, to answer these, these calls. And I don't want to you know, slander anybody, so I'm not going to give you the name. Um, but I went into the office on the first day for this person who ended up becoming a pretty well-known, bold-faced individual. And I'm, you know, sitting there, I'm, you know, 22. I don't know my head from my ass. I'm literally wearing my mother's hand-me-down search suits with like the Alexis Carrington, you know, dynasty um, shoulder pads. And I'm, I'm looking at this enormous phone with like 8 billion buttons and the phone rings. And I was like, hello. And, you know, I say the guy's name. This is his office. And the woman on the other end of the phone is like, is he in? This is his mother. <laughs> now, I'm like, oh, this is the very first phone call, the very first day, 1201, right after inauguration. And I, I'm like, uh, hold on a minute, please. And I take the phone and I look at all the buttons and I'm just like, I'll just put the phone next, the handle next to the phone because I was so afraid I was going to disconnect this guy's mom. And I, I tiptoe into his office and I was like, excuse me, sir your mother's online one. <laughs> He's sitting there. This is back before the internet. So, you know, the news came out on a daily basis with like photocopies of major newspaper stories and we call them the clips. And he's sitting there with his feet up on the desk, flipping through the clips. And he's like, oh, tell her I'm really busy. I'll call her later. Okay. So I tiptoe <laughs> back and I pick up the phone and I'm like, excuse me, ma'am. Um, he said he needs to call you back later. He's really busy. Okay, thank you. And I hang up the phone. And that afternoon, I I, I um, walked down to the volunteer office and I talked to my friend Patrick and I was like, I would rather go back to law school than to work for someone like that. Because it just, I would have been like, mom, I'm in the White House. Can you believe it? So cool. Yeah. I mean, I was literally like stealing stationery and this guy can't talk to his mom. <laughs> and, 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 and then the next day he calls me up and he's led it, the, the volunteer guy calls me up and he's like, okay, uh, I got another assignment for you. I know you really want to work in national service go work for Eli Siegel. And I go work for Eli Siegel. And this is a guy who walks up to me and is like, hi, um, thank you for being here. Thanks for doing all this hard work. My name's Eli Siegel. It's nice to meet you. And I was like, dude, of course I know who you are. You ran the campaign. And just the difference between those two individuals and their character and sort of who they were when nobody was watching really told me a lot about it just taught me about like what it means to be a leader and who you can be. And so even if you don't have this like, amazing gravitational shift in charisma like Bill Clinton, there are people like Eli, Eli, when Eli died very prematurely of mesothelioma, there were a thousand people at his funeral and Ted Kennedy gave the eulogy. And he said in his eulogy, there are a thousand of you in this room and every single one of you either thinks you're Eli's best friend or his very good friend. And every single one of you is right. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. 
Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. AWeber, simpler email marketing. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So uh, you can ask your question that maybe might be uncomfortable, and uh, if it is, we'll, we'll go ahead and edit it out. But uh, I, I didn't know the interns. I wasn't going to ask you if you knew them, uh, but you speak so highly of Bill Clinton that I wonder, you know, the way you spoke about him as a woman in the era of Me Too, does your perception of that charisma and, you know, his leadership capabilities change? Like, what is your response to that? I wonder. 
You know, it's really fraught for me, to be honest. Um, when everything happened with Monica Lewinsky, I, I, I took, I have a lot of photos with him and, you know, signed letters and, you know, part of the state of the union that I wrote and all of those things that, you know, you just, you, you gather in life when you do interesting things. And I have to admit that when it all went down, I took all of those pictures off my wall for about a year, a good year, maybe more. Um, I was so disappointed. And, and honestly, it wasn't because of, it wasn't because of the affair. I felt like the affair was a was a divorceable offense, not an impeachable offense. I, I was more upset that he did it in the Oval Office. You know, I am such a deep believer in the power of leadership and of the power of the bully pulpit. I, I don't agree with much of anything Ronald Reagan stood for. That said, the man never took off his suit jacket in the Oval Office. Such was his reverence for the Oval Office. And I just, for me... And as you might imagine, I feel that similarly about our yeah, current right president. Um, the just the disrespect of the institution of government and the best and the brightest and what it can all mean, that was really what upset me the most about it. Now, that said, at the time, I was 25 and I didn't really understand the dynamics of men in power. And, you know, now I look back on it and it's like, yeah, it wasn't exactly consensual, right? I mean, it was consensual, but it's hard to say when you're president and the person's 20 something years old that anything's consensual. I mean, that's, you know, we don't even have full frontal lobes till we're 25 and the, you know, frontal lobes, the part of our brain that dictates good decision-making and, you know, somebody in that relationship needed to be an adult and it should have been him. So, you know, obviously for me, it's hard to say, um, you know, should he burn in hell? Is he the worst human being ever? I mean, I, I, believe that there was a lot of good that was accomplished. I also believe he deeply abused his position. And I also believe he's not alone in that. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate your uh, candor. Let's get into this idea of consonance. You you referenced it earlier, uh, and you actually wrote about it in the book. You said that consonance is the sense of frictionless belonging of a momentous stride of core relevance. It's a guiding force that reveals how your work, whatever that may be, contributes to your overall life's plan. Uh, could you give us uh, an overview of what you call the four elements of consonance? Yeah. So, you know, those moments when like everything that you're doing, it just isn't working for you. You're just, you're like firing on all cylinders and you're making it rain, or you maybe you're having a quiet moment with a loved one, or, you know, you're hosting this podcast, or it could be loud, it could be quiet, it could be private, it could be public. But you know, those moments you have when you're like, yeah, like this works. Yeah. I think that's consonance. It's when what you do matches who you are. And what I learned in 20 years of interviewing people is that it really comes from some combination of these four elements. And each one of us at every age and at every life stage is going to need them and have them differently. So the first is calling. And calling is this thing that's bigger than you. It's like a gravitational force um, that gets you out of bed in the morning. It could be a business you want to build. It could be a bottom line that you want to grow. It could be a family you want to nurture. It could be a societal ill that you wish to call, uh, to the, that, that you wish to serve. But it needs to be something that's bigger than just you. That's the first. The second is connection. And connection is really the answer to why do you in this job, in this box, in this organizational chart, in this company matter? It's the sight lines and the understanding of why if you called in sick to work tomorrow, anybody would care, right? Is your work actually connecting on a daily basis to trying to serve whatever that calling might be? The third is contribution. 
So we all want our work to contribute in some way to the life that we want to build. And if you're, if you're, connection is all about the work. Contribution is really all about you. So how does this brand, this paycheck, this, um, uh, this company, it's prestige. Uh, it's, it's, uh, the, the way that it's thought of in the world. How does it allow you to manifest your values on a daily basis? How does it allow you to live the lifestyle or have the life that you want to afford? And how, um, does it, how does it impact the velocity and the arc of your career trajectory? And then lastly is control. And control is just quite simply your own personal agency. So how much control do you have over how much your work is able to connect, how much you get to do that actually matters, and how much contribution it gives to your life as you're working towards that calling? And each one of us, as I said, at every age and at every life stage, it's going to be different. It's going to be different for me than it is for you. It's going to be different for you now than it was 20 years ago or 20 years from now. And I think part of the reason why we feel stuck is because there is a moment in time, usually when we're 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, where somebody says, pick a college, pick a trade, pick a path, go. And as I mentioned earlier, we don't have full frontal lobes at that point. And so like the joke's on us. We're asked to pick this path when we literally don't have the decision-making ability to make good decisions. And so we, we, we go along this way and 10 years later or 20 years later, we look around and we go, eh, is this all it is? Like, is this all I was meant for? Like I, it, it, it was supposed to be right. Why doesn't it feel right? And it's because we start our career at some point valuing each of these four C's of consonants differently. And then we don't mm-hmm. let that flex and change and grow and allow ourselves to flex and change and grow within it. Yeah. Well, it, it's funny because you kind of read my mind when you mentioned, you know, what this would be like at 20 versus, you know, what would this be like at 40? Like, I'm going to be 41 on Thursday. And I, I think about how different the way I would make a decision about careers is now, particularly, I always find it a, kind of absurd that we ask 18 year olds to pick life paths when they don't have a lot of data points. Like any decision-making expert would tell you this is inevitably going to lead to a potentially poor decision unless you're incredibly self-aware. Uh, so a part of me wonders, why are we not, do you think we just don't have the capacity to look at our work through this kind of a lens when we're in our 20s? Because I can tell you when I went to Berkeley, uh, pretty much there, there were two things that determined how you were going to choose your work, prestige or the size of a paycheck. That was it. It was like, if you got a job at Google or McKinsey or a venture capital firm, you had made it or you went to med school or law school. Uh and people would think if you're at, you were out of your mind to say that working at Goldman Sachs sounds like a shitty job. I would absolutely agree. And even if we gave these 18-year-olds all of the data points, they yeah. literally don't have the mental capacity. Like they don't have these frontal, like they can't do it. Even if we, even if we gave them all the data in the world, and we don't have all the data in the world because we don't even know who we are at that point. You know, I, I had the same thing. You, you know, people were like, oh, they, they would talk in the hallways about people who got these great jobs at, at, you know, at one of the big five CPA firms or at a consulting firm or, you know, on Wall Street. And then everyone else was like, oh, they, they're, they're, they're going to be an artist. Right. Or they're going into, you know, they're going to be a journalist or they're going into writing or these like soft professions. And uh-huh. there was almost like a hush, like a, oh, well, good luck. Right. And, <laughs> and, and it's ridiculous. And, you know, I mean, I hear all the time that the, that the careers that my children will have aren't even created yet, that they're going to have to create their own path. And, you know, I have a, I, again, I mentioned my son who, who's fascinated by NASA. This is a kid who, in his spare time, he's teaching himself Russian um, with Duolingo because that's the language of the International Space Station. Oh, uh-huh. okay. 
right? Like that was not something that I would think about doing. That was never an idea. My younger son wants to go into hospitality or he wants to, he wants to design women's couture fashion. I mean, these are things that I think would, would not have been acceptable, right? And you were just one of those kids who like, oh, you're going to an art college. Oh, that's sweet. Good luck to your parents. And you move back <laughs> home, right? I mean, that was always the, like, the goal of parents was, I want my kids to go to college, get out of the house and never come back. And <laughs> that said, I would like my kids to go to college and never come back, but not because they can't afford it, because I think that's a healthy thing and I want their, their life to be good. But yeah. I, I think that we used to have the scorecard where we were supposed to decide jobs based on, like you said, prestige or money or the inspiration of the leader or the new skills that we, we might acquire or the scale of impact or where the job was located or what the benefits were. Of course, you know, like how much does it pay? But there, the, and when I was recruiting, I used to listen for these motivating factors, right? I used to listen as I was talking to, to potential candidates. And these were candidates who, they didn't even know the job existed before me, the person you know, who I also didn't even know existed, called them up. And so I was calling up these candidates, asking them to turn their lives completely upside down, move themselves and their families across the country or across the world to take these positions. And I was armed with this checklist of things that were mostly meaningless. And I would talk to them about the prestige or about the money. And the truth is, it would get them interested. And I knew that if I heard like two or three of them, they'd be like, yeah, okay, there'll be a second conversation. And four or five, I knew pretty much I could put them in front of my client. And if there were like six or seven or eight, like if they were totally into the mission and the impact and the new skills and all those things, I was like the fish is in the boat. I am set. And I'll move on to the next candidate. And then I would notice over time that my candidates would start to ghost me. These like beautiful, giant, robust, diverse pools of candidates would start to disappear. And it wasn't until I understood that I was bringing to them a list about the value of the job, but I wasn't bringing them a list about the value of the job to them, right? So if you're somebody who um, likes to go on, I mean, let me ask you, like, do you like to go on, you know, weekend getaways to beautiful cosmopolitan cities and stay in fancy hotels? Or are you somebody who likes to go deep into the woods and go camping and wake up next to the stream and look at the sunrise while you make your eggs, you know, uh, over the fire? Well, I, I would choose the hotel, but there's a caveat. If you put snowboarding or surfing in there, I would definitely choose that over the okay. busy right. weekend in the city. So right. yeah, uh, kind of somewhere in between, but I, I get where you're going with it. Right. So the answer, of course, is summer without bugs, right? Either way, it's the bugs yeah. and the camping. Um, so, but when I ask this question, when I speak and I, and I just spoke last week to 2,000 people in Calgary and 2,000 people in Toronto, in Vancouver. And I asked this question and half the audience was like, yes, big fancy cosmopolitan city. And the other half of the audience was like, yes, I want to grow. I want to wake up with the bugs in the stream. Um, uh -huh. And what I say to them is, if you think about the metric of money, this all important measure of success, if I were to say to you, here's a job that's going to pay you a lot more money, but you'll have less vacation. So the only vacations you're going to take are those nice little weekends to cosmopolitan cities. You'd be like, great, awesome. If I were to ask you that, if you were the guy who wants to wake up at the stream, you'd be like, no, that's not going to work for me. In fact, I'd rather have less money, but more vacation because those far you know, out camping places are actually harder to get to. And so you know, we'd look at these metrics and we say, okay, well, I know on paper, those are the metrics that matter, but they don't actually matter to me. And so I can fill in those checkboxes and I can make the money, but I'm not really happy. And so the whole book is written with this idea of giving people a framework to actually be able to think about 
changing up the scorecard and making it a scorecard that works for them, particularly wonderfully quirkily them, as opposed to everybody else's scorecard. Yeah. So I want to come back to the idea of the scorecard, but um, I want to ask about something else you said. And, and you know, it's funny because I think in a lot of ways you've said this in, in really different and but very eloquent ways multiple times throughout the book. You said we all have goals that we think of as our own creation, but the truth is that most of them were set by someone else. Your parents told you to get good grades in school. Your boss tells you to want the big promotion. Your friends and neighbors pressure you to score the right spouse, drive the right car, live in the right apartment, wear the right clothes in exactly the right size. And I wonder how in a world where you're literally inundated with everything that you're saying, uh, from just scrolling through your Facebook newsfeed in a day to advertising to you know messages from all around us, and then layer on top of that all the social programming and, and stuff you receive from whatever your environment was growing up, how is it that you um, don't become a victim of your social programming, I guess, is really where. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I think that I think that we get stuck in that. I think it's really hard to ignore everyone. And and I think the first thing we have to do is just say, screw them. You know, I mean, I know it's easier said than done, but I think, I think that, um, I think it is really difficult to live everybody else's life based on social media. You know, I, we all have those friends. I call them the Joneses. <laughs> they're, they're the ones with the super fancy Facebook photo and the super perfect, um, uh, uh, you know, beautiful sunrise, uh, vacation pictures. And, you know, you know them, right? Like you can uh -huh. picture them, you know, those friends, um, that you have and everything always seems so perfect. And, you know, it can't possibly be that way. And yet <laughs> when we look at those pictures, we're like, well, maybe, maybe it is for them. Maybe I'm just doing something really wrong. And yeah. we spend a ton of time we spend a ton of time judging our own bloopers by everybody else's highlight reels. And then we wonder why we feel like failures. Well, I mean, of course we feel like failures because we're looking at everybody's very, you know, washed version of their success. And so I'd like to tell the story about how this year on the, on the first day of school, my children were, um, they were such horrible human beings. They were just absolutely <laughs> unmitigated disasters. And my children are normally lovely. They are great kids. I'm a really lucky parent. People tell me I'm a great mom, but I'm like, no, I just got great kids. <laughs> I just, I'm just along for the ride. Um, but I, uh, they were terrible. They didn't stop fighting long enough for me to take that one most important proof point for social media that I'm the very best parent in the world, you know, like the, <laughs> the first day of school photo. Yeah. And and, 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 you know, I'm a working mother. And so it takes me, it's, it takes a lot of, and I travel 150,000 miles a year. Like I am on the road a lot. So it takes a lot of fancy dancing to show up at, you know, those really important moments, like the science fair, do -si do or, um, you know, the, uh, the, the, the parent teacher conferences, do -si do and the first day of school, like do -si fucking do right? Like that is the granddaddy of them all. And I, did it every year for 13 years. Like every year for 13 years, I showed up and I was there and I took my kids to school and we took that perfect picture. And this year, my kids were psychopaths. And, <laughs> and, and, and so I did what any good parent would do. I um, yelled at them with everything in my soul, like alien. I came out of my body. Uh, and, and I wasn't proud of it. But I didn't know what else to do. Like uh, it was just one of those out of body experiences. And then we drove to school in stony silence with them fuming in the back seat and me fuming in the front seat. And I was holding back like 
tears of self-doubt and insecurity and disappointment and anger. And, and, and I was questioning every sacrifice I ever made as a mother and especially every sacrifice I never made as a working mother. And all the while, of course, at stoplights, like a terrible person checking Facebook and looking at everybody else's perfect pictures of their perfect children. And then my kids got out of the car, leaving a trail of teenage angst behind them, which I'll tell you smells. And, and then I like fantasized the whole way home about all the ways I would punish them. Like, you know, you've seen those, 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 those giant t-shirts with the two head holes, like our get along shirt. <laughs> like I'd stick uh-huh. them in that shirt or I'd drop them off 20 miles from home and make them figure it out. You know, I'd take their cell phones away. And, 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 and then I, that night at dinner started lecturing them about all the ways that their behavior affected me and how it it was disappointing and how it, it 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 didn't reflect who we were as people and that we could do better and my son my older son looked at me and said you know well it was the first day of school like we were we were stressed like new teachers new friends new classes we didn't know what to expect and my younger son was like yeah and mom you seem like you had a lot going on with work like i know you know you moved stuff around to be with us but like i don't know that you really were with us and that led us to a conversation about who we were as a family and who we were when we showed up for each other and how we uplift each other. And we decided that the next day we'd have a do-over. And we got up in the morning and um, I made breakfast. They showered. <laughs> it was a success all around. And I got that picture. And of course, I posted it on Facebook. Uh-huh. <laughs> I posted it on Facebook with this happy second day of school message about how in it it was actually in the letting go of everybody else's definition of success and ignoring everybody else that we were actually able to find our own definition of success, that our definition of success wasn't this idea of having everybody else's perfect first day of school photo, but it was in the grace and the love that we found in having the conversation about how we support each other. So that's kind of a long story to say that it wasn't until I decided to ignore everybody else that we were able to find that state of grace within our own family and define success for ourselves. I love that. Uh, wow, there's so many valuable lessons in that. I think that uh, apply to not just you know uh, parenting, but work and life. So one thing you, you mentioned earlier uh, was this idea of a scorecard, and this is a question I've, I've asked a number of people because of the fact that it's been on my mind a lot lately. Um, and that is this idea of how we measure our lives, right? So Clayton Christensen wrote this amazing book in 2009 called How Will You Measure Your Life, which I think is far more relevant today than it was when he published it uh, because of the fact that we can quantify everything. And one of the things that I started to see in my own life was, wow, like the way that I'm measuring has a really profound impact on my happiness and my well-being. Like if I measure my self-esteem in book sales and podcast downloads, well, then it's going to inevitably fluctuate because I'm measuring my self-worth in metrics that fluctuate. So I wonder at this point in your life, how do you measure your life? Well, my book came out on Tuesday, so I'm measuring my life in book sales and podcasts. (laughs) It's, I mean, it's addictive. It's addictive. I think I check, I think I checked every hour for the first three days and then I, it was madness. I, it just like oh. that way goes madness. Yeah. So how do I measure my life? You know, I, I would like at the end of my life not to have one of those funerals where people talk about the titles that I had or the awards that I won or any of those things, but I just, I want people to get really stinking drunk and tell stories about how <laughs> their life was in some small way better 
because I had some part of it. I mean, I really, I really do think that that's at the end of the day, all that matters. And I told my, I was having this very philosophical conversation with my husband about six months ago. And I was like, I, I'd, I'd had like a, one of those sort of scary medical tests that ended up, everything ended up coming back fine. But in those days when we were waiting, I was like, don't let people cry at my funeral. I don't want it to be sad. I want people to laugh and tell funny stories. And he's like, I can't control what people do at your funeral. <laughs> I was like, yes, you can. You can control everything. <laughs> Make me because I'm such a control freak. Um, I mean, I sit in the aisle seat of every airplane, not because I think I'm going to live through like this fiery explosion, but just like even the illusion of control. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. to me. Um, so at the end of the day, I really do, I really do measure like my, my scorecard and how I measure my life is based on, is based on the, the small changes, the, like those, the, the, like the small hinges that you're able to mm. provide for other people so that their doors can swing wide open. Mm. I love that. I just, I just think there's always more money to be made. I think there's always different jobs to get. I think there's always more weight to lose. Like, I think that there's always more stuff to buy. Like, you can never catch up. And I think that, I think that in it, it, there are these four words in the English language that I think kill our dreams and make us unhappy before they even exit our mouths. Like when they first cross our minds, this "I'll be happy when." Right? I'll be happy when I get the job. I'll be happy when I graduate from college. I'll be happy when I get promoted. I'll be happy when I get married. I'll be happy when I get divorced. I don't like just be happy now. And I think that um I come from a long line of women who have a very hard time leaving lunch before planning what we're gonna eat for dinner. You know, I sit on on the beach <laughs> in the vacation and I turn to my husband, I'm like, where are we gonna go next? And he's like, just can we just be here <laughs> right now? And so I I'm I think a great measurement for our life is to think about how we can be happy in the now a little bit more. Mm, wow. Wow. Um, well, I think that makes a really appropriate end or conversation. So I have one last uh, question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Oh boy. I think that there's a voice that each one of us has inside. And I think that, I think that we spend a lot of time listening to the one dissenting voice and not listening to the 10 supportive voices. And I think what makes people unmistakably creative is to let go of that one nagging voice, whether it's, you know, the bully from junior high or the parent or the boss or the spouse or whoever it might be, or even in in most cases, our own voice. And really just letting ourselves fail. I believe fully that failure is not finale, it's fulcrum. And I think that um, the ability to enjoy and see the failure as an opportunity to grow unleashes so much potential creativity inside each of us. Amazing. Um, Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and uh, share your story and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, and the new book? Yeah. So. I'm on all the socials at Hey LGO. That's H E Y L G O. Um, you can find me online at HeyLGO.com. If you're listening to me talk about consonants and you're wondering where to get started, I created a little quiz online. It's at LimitlessAssessment.com. And I'll say that again, LimitlessAssessment.com. And it takes about 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, it's a little intense pretty catalyzing questions to get you really thinking. But at the end of it, you'll get a beautiful radar chart that has one graph that shows how much 
calling, connection, contribution, and control you currently have in your life and how much of each you want to have in your life. And it'll give some tips about how to go about getting it. So um, that's at limitlessassessment.com. And of course, the book, Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path, and Live Your Best Life is on amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, and anywhere fine books are sold. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.